Hey guys, do you have a screenplay you need feedback on? Well, you are in luck. I, Julio, the half of the contrarians that speaks with an accent, am doing official screenplay coverage now. And if you're a listener of the show, you'll get a discount. Just email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com and tell us which is your favorite episode of the podcast and why. Turnaround is about two weeks and you'll get detailed notes that are even more thorough than what we do in the show. Although it'll also be less funny. For more information, email wearethecontrarians at gmail.com or visit our website, wearethecontrarians.com, and click on the Julio Reads Your Scripts link. Your voice is beautiful. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Episode number 52 brings us to Righteous Kill, as we've talked about. Man, this is a movie we've discussed since the the zenith of this podcast, I feel like. I think it's one of those movies that's kind of universally hated, uh, but also not enough people talk about it. No, it does not get any... The level of discussion about this movie is nowhere near where it should be. (laughs) Yes. Uh, but I, of course, am Alex, joined as always by my co-host and friend Julio. Uh, Julio, you know, we kind of started off pretty heavy here getting right into it, but uh, otherwise than that, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. I, I think that it's reassuring to see that sometimes miracles can happen. In this case, Pacino and De Niro just getting them together. In a together room. again. Yeah, I don't know if you've read that whole thing about how they're, they only share one scene in Heat because uh-huh. they, they just hate each other. Oh really? That's what I I don't know how you know reliable that is as a as a story, but uh, I think that they prove it wrong. Either that, or they put all their problems aside and just. I think they read the script out. for this and realized it was bigger than their beef. Yes. It, it was bigger than both of them. Let's let's bury the hatchet for a couple of months. Get this this amazing crime thriller out, and then we can go back to hating each other. John Abnett worked basically as the uh, psychiatrist for the, their uh, their beef, as it were. That's him playing the psychiatrist in the movie. That's right. Yeah, with the shitty goatee. Um, but this is a movie. Uh, my voice cracked. Yeah, voice cracking, uh, sniffles, all that. I'm currently suffering from what we refer to in Austin as the cedar fever. So, um, yeah, I apologize for any high pitches, low pitches, any sniffles throughout the episode. But. I thought it was just emotion. Oh, that that, that was earlier. We've had a good twenty minutes since we stopped the the film that uh, since it ended. Um, but again, righteous kill here today. Now this is uh, at a meager nineteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Julio, what were the critics saying about this? Um, not very nice things. At least most of them. Uh, Jason Madloff from Boston Globe says, "Say it ain't so, Bobby and Al." Who took it personally? Uh, James Bernelli from Real Views says there's nothing righteous to be found here. 
Zing. Uh, Ali Gray from theshiznit.co.uk. Oh, not, not the shiznit again. <laughs> yeah. uh, a murky, muddled, miserable mess. Righteous Kill spends 101 minutes failing to achieve what Heat managed in just six. Uh, All right. David Nasser from Real Film Reviews says, The phrase phoning it in was practically invented for Pacino and De Niro's work here. Uh, Daily Mirror UK, with no actual author there, says, This one's no heat, more of a pan of thin gruel brought to simmer. <laughs> uh, Trevor Johnston from Time Out says, They look like jobbing veteran actors picking up another payday in some routine cup filler. And Avnet's busily clueless direction offers them and the clunky writing little help. Pacino, De Niro, it's over. Jeez. And finally, Mark Ramsey from Movie Juice says, Robert De Niro is having sex with Carla Gugino. I know. It's like witnessing a traffic accident where an Edsel keeps slamming into a shiny red Corvette. <laughs> that's amazing. That, that's excellent. That does happen in the movie. Repeatedly. <laughs> Uh, we'll talk about that. So again, directed by uh, John Abnett and written by Russell um, Gewertz. Excuse me, uh, Abnett. What was the other movie we discussed? Eighty-eight minutes. Eighty-eight minutes. So he had worked with Pacino prior, uh, and uh, Gerwitz had written uh, Inside Man with Denzel Washington. So they they weren't you know spry pups coming in here. They they had had their feet wet for a while. Um, they could definitely the resume indicated that they could handle. The explosive combination uh, that pussy uh, Michael Mann could only do six minutes of Pacino De Niro, but they went with the whole 100 of Yeah, one. 101 minutes, and the, just full force. Nothing less. No, yeah. So the movie starts off with the confession from David Fisk, who is played by Robert De Niro, a member of the NYPD. We quickly come to learn that this is a confession for what is known as the poetry killer. Uh, there's been a serial killer on the loose in New York City, uh, and De Niro... Uh, is at the helm of these murders. Yeah, he's uh he really he goes by Turk, which is a very important detail. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, Pacino goes by Rooster. Yes, uh, I guess referencing his hairdo in this movie. <laughs> Pacino, Tom Cowan, uh, as we learn quickly as well. Uh, yeah, but Rooster and Turk, for all intents and purposes, we only use David and Tom for the first and last scene of this film. Basically, uh. Uh, but yeah, uh, Pacino's hair, I just can't get over it because it was, it's such a work of art. And it reminded me of, uh, do you remember when the Da Vinci Code came out and people would just not stop talking about Tom Hanks's hair? hair. And uh, I remember Hanks saying that uh, he, in an interview, he goes something like, well, you know, when you create a character, every element of that character tells a story and this, this hairdo tells a story and... Pacino's hair here, it just it tells like an entire series. Yeah. It's not messy in the sense that because it stays put. It's far gazing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, it definitely it, and it provides good contrast with De Niro's bus cut. High and tight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Classic De Niro. Classic Bobby, as the reviewer had mentioned. Uh they have been partners on the they've been partners with the NYPD for thirty years. We get this real-time footage, it seems, interloped with this confession footage of the poetry killer, um, Turk. Uh, the recording basically provides the narrative throughout the film. It's a constant that keeps bringing us back into you know where we are in the story um, in terms of if we seem to stray away, we'll come back to this 
uh, pre-recorded message, which it looks like the feds are watching this as we keep coming back to it. Yeah, I mean, some dudes in suits and ties mm-hmm. looking very disturbed by the nearest confession. The original target of Turk and Rooster was Spider, played by 50 Cent. Uh, he's basically their long game, the one they're looking into. Uh, basically, drug laundering, is that... He he sells drugs, yeah. right? Because he, he gets poor. Or not issues. drug laundering, excuse me. Yeah, he's basically like a drug a kingpin drug, yeah, in New yeah, York yeah. City. This is a uh, Fifty Cent just graduating to Curtis, Curtis Jackson. Jackson. Yeah, this is like a serious. Was he thing. billed as Curtis Jackson? I think so. Yeah. God bless. He's definitely on the on the website. He's listed as Curtis Jackson. Excellent. Uh, not even Curtis. Fifty Cent Jackson. It's just <laughs> Curtis Jackson. Forget about my rap career and that biopic I made. Um, so that's who they're after. They go into his club, kind of scoping him out, getting some intel on it, and they come across who they're going to make the rat for the situation. Um, one of the users of his drugs, who Julio and I just referred to as not Alicia Silverstone. Definitely not Alicia Silverstone, but I guess you really, even Alicia Silverstone wouldn't come across as Alicia Silverstone next to the star power of De Niro and Pacino. Yeah. So you might as well... Save a little bit on the budget and get get the next one. And I mean, we thing. might as well just get this out of the way. Curtis Jackson is fantastic in this, but he's just overpowered by the presence of Al everybody. And... There's there's a solid cast here, but they they got nothing on the two leads. Not dating the film at all. Uh, we get um, a scene of the poetry killer shooting uh, Rob Deerdeck, the famous skateboarder from the mid to late two thousands. Who he was a pimp, right? Was that his? Yeah, he's a pimp. So first we see him like slapping some prostitute around and get making her get in the car. What we learn is the poetry killer is bas- he's kind of like Batman killing people. He's a vigilante that He's a Punisher. There you go. Yes. Yeah. But much more Robert De Niro-esque. <laughs> yes. Well, much more measure. He uses like one bullet whereas the Punisher would just empty an entire magazine. That's true. Guess, on these or people. like shove a pencil through someone's eye or some <laughs> right, shit yeah. like that. God could you imagine a Punisher with Robert De Niro? I would love it. I want Netflix. Get on that. <laughs> you killed my kid. <laughs> killed my wife. Well, I think that, you know how they did Logan, where it's just Wolverine, old Wolverine. You're the old Punisher, and that's De Niro, and you, you can buy just it. Just call it Punished. Punished. Uh, so, not Alicia Silverstone. You just call it Frank. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is what it feels like, huh? <laughs> Uh, not Alicia Silverstone is used as the informant. They put basically wire her up. They're going to send her into uh, Spider's uh, lair, cave, whatever you want to call it. It basically looks like a gutted and rented out warehouse in the fucking middle of Manhattan. Um, through this, we learn that the lieutenant, basically the boss for Pacino and De Niro, is Brian Dennehy, who's very underutilized. Uh, but in this movie, you know. He's going for every scene that he's on camera. Yeah. Well, he has to because all his scenes are with De Niro and, and Pacino. So if he doesn't bring it, he's You got to gonna... go big or go home if right, you're on screen right. with them. There is no uh... – and, and that, is, uh, that is something that we kind of mentioned while we were watching it. Everybody's trying so hard and De Niro and, and Pacino are just kind of – they're so chill because they yeah. don't really – they're just that good. They don't even have to try. They're 5% is most people's 100%. <laughs> exactly. So then he's just like sweating and really like <laughs> – you, you can see the veins pulsating on his forehead. And Pacino and De Niro are just sitting there kind of like – When he's yep. in the background, you can just see him taking this flask out of his breast pocket and just taking a big swig. Um, is he abnet? You guys want to do one more? <laughs> Pacino and De Niro just kind of look at Dennehy and then he's like – 
one more. <laughs> uh, so, you know, as you would expect this early into the film, the uh, not heist, but what is what term I'm looking for? The sting. The sting, the sting goes awry. 50 Cent catches on very quickly that this uh, woman is not there. She's this tiny, frail little blonde thing that wants to buy a quarter pound of cocaine. He catches on pretty quick that this this <laughs> she, is not legitimate. She she tries, but of course, because uh, she goes, "Oh yeah, I'm partying in Aspen or something." She's buying drugs for all her friends. Yeah, come on now. No, and that's another thing. Yeah, how are you going to travel with a quarter pound of cocaine? How are you going to fly with that? Not even the real Alicia Silverstone could pull that off. Oh, absolutely it, not. not. Even back in her Aerosmith <laughs> music video days. Oh. I'm going to have to add that song to the podcast just for that reference. Uh, Now, Spider tries to handle this amicably, but his henchman pulls out a gun. It leads to a shootout in which not Alicia Silverstone gets shot. Not fatally, but Spider's henchman does get killed. Um, And De Niro gets very mad about this and just stomps maliciously a handcuffed 50 Cent. I think this is the first time that we see him, other than obviously the fact that we're hearing his confession to being a murderer, uh, as a voiceover, but uh, this is the first time that we see him like really lose it. Mm-hmm. Except till then, we've seen him get a little angry. There was there was like a softball game earlier that we saw where uh, he... that's that's a... oh that's the next scene. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but so so yeah, this is officially the first time that we see the Nero maybe since be... since I think Meet the Parents. It's the first <laughs> time we've seen him, you know, get riled up. It feels good. Yeah. It feels good to see the Nero cutting loose. It's again. cathartic. Yeah, it, it and it's entirely deserved. I mean, that guy shot first, mm-hmm. so he was the greedo of this this first <laughs> act. Uh, so Carla Gugino, Gugino, have we? Do we know how to? F- I think it's Gugino. Gugino, okay. Uh, she plays Corelli, who is uh, Karen. Is that her first name? Karen, Karen Corelli, who is Robert De Niro's uh, girlfriend in the film. Um, we're briefly introduced to her earlier on, but it's kind of a scene you're not quite sure where it goes. Uh, I guess her and De Niro into role play. Um, that is putting it mildly. I think the movie, and, and I pray, I, I'm I'm down with this. The movie, like so many misunderstood movies that do this, uh, it embraces Carla Gugino's sexuality, and it's and it embraces Robert De Niro's sexuality. <laughs> yes, which one is a surprise? The other one is just kind of. I don't know, unusual, uh, but that her introductory scene is before we even know that she she she's a cop. Yeah, we just see her come into an apartment, and then somebody grabs her, and we're like, "Holy shit!" We're like 15 minutes in, and we already have like sexual abuse going on. This movie is, is yeah, going hard that's forward. right. And then you see De Niro in bed, and she's with him. Right, the big reveal. It's like, oh no, it was not rape. It was just role play. She likes it rough. Uh, she even teases him. She's like, man, you barely pulled my hair. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so in transition into the next scene, uh, much like in Fight Club when uh, Brad Pitt ins- inserts the single splice of pornography into the movie, we get this very fleeting and quick shot of Robert De Niro maliciously having sex with Carlo Gugino uh, as she's bent over a couch uh, we see the shot from the door frame. So De Niro's head is just in and out, coming into frame. He's sweating profusely, and she's panting. It's you know you feel like you're in a car wreck watching it because you're you're turned upside down, and it's only about five seconds long. Uh, we that's the only time De Niro sweats in the movie. <laughs> it's the only time you see that look of passion in his eyes. Also, 
you see how much yes he's a he's woken you can see how much the the law enforcement life has taken from him he's numbed so much except passion <laughs> right and, and what i think it's very telling that the one person he he can still have sex with is another cop mm-hmm. you know it's it's if gugino who's she's gorgeous but maybe if she oh, was yeah. not a police officer he still wouldn't even have it in him to just give that much uh we we basically learned that their relationship is built on passion. And speaking of very hot, the next scene we're introduced to Donnie Wahlberg's character Riley, uh, who's also accompanied by his partner John Leguizamo uh, Perez. They are also a part of the NYPD, but they're the they're the young version. Comparatively speaking, they're the rookie version of Pacino and De Niro. Right. You you can see how like thirty forty years down the line they'll grow into. Being like Pacino and De Niro, mm-hmm. you know, I would I would imagine Leguizamo uh, uh, would be like Pacino, the the kind of. Neither of them like, are ready to handle a woman like Gugino. Uh, <laughs> oh no, oh no, Gugino would just like have him for breakfast, yeah. and they'd be like, "Who's next?" <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, I think maybe Wahlberg would be like De Niro because he's a little more taciturn, and Leguizamo, who's more of a loud mm-hmm. mouth, would be Pacino, uh, and. Uh, and yeah, they're they're also you know what it's. I understand the logistics of marketing a movie. You spend a lot of money. You want to get all that money back and make a profit. So of course you can't. The idea of business is to turn a profit, right? And, and so that's where Donnie Wahlberg comes in. You need the eye candy, yes. And and uh, you get it's not just Wahlberg. I mean, uh, Samuel takes his shirt off a couple of times later in the movie. That's true. It's, you need to capture. That- He's not the pest any longer. He's the man. Oh no no no, he's uh, he's the pest with a capital P. That's uh, he he's there for that that young adult audience. That honestly, at this point, they probably admire De Niro and Pacino, but they're not gonna really be excited by the prospect of De Niro taking his shirt off, mm-hmm. which he does. And, yeah. uh, uh, he does at, at that scene where uh, he's fixing the sink, and you get to see some gnarly scar in his back for like two seconds, and then uh, De Niro. Yeah, De Niro. It's uh. That it's might have been when I stepped out. Yeah, it's, it's that moment where uh, they've just had sex, and then I guess he went to fix the sink. Oh, okay. And then Gugino's like, do you want something to eat? Or he's like, do you want to eat? And she's like, well, can you go get food? She ends up kicking him out. Okay. Proving that she's she wears the pants at that house. Yes. Carla Gugino wears the pants in any situation that she's in in this film. The poetry killer continues, uh, his most recent victim being a rapist who got off the hook. Um, basically was free to go, even being clearly guilty of the crime. On his way out of the courtroom, the uh, aforementioned rapist and De Niro have kind of a uh, face-to-face, and you know, De Niro is letting him know that he, you know he's not going to get off easy and to watch his back when he gets out. So obviously this continuous voiceover and confession definitely fits in line with what we're seeing. It, it's almost like, why are you even confessing, Robert De Niro, when you could have just said, you were all right. I did it because what I mean, it's not that he's trying to hide in his day to day behavior. No, that he's ready to kill these people. Mm-hmm. He literally tells the guy, like, watch your back when you're out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how is he not prime suspect? But then I guess the bigger point that this movie makes is that the NYPD is so overwhelmed with work, with crime, that they just can't really take proper care of their officers. Mm-hmm. So. As you watch the story, both Pacino and De Niro are kind of like on the edge of losing it, and uh, and of course one of them does. That's like and the other one barely makes it. In investigating the crime scene of the most recent murder of the poetry killer, uh, all four we have Turk, 
Rooster, Perez, and Riley. In investigating the crime scene, they all realize that this has to be a cop doing it based on, you know, no fingerprints, no conclusive evidence, the silencer on the gun, knowing where the victims are going to be. That Basically, everything they come to the conclusion it has to be a cop doing it. Um, and the most uh, reasonable suggestion by Rooster and Turk is Lieutenant Martin Baugh, who's someone that was released from the force. I, I, I couldn't remember exactly It's, it's somebody that has some sort of beef with De Niro, which prompts Leguizamo to just ask a very rational question. Well, why is he killing other people instead of just going and killing you? Yeah, that's right. Um, but they believe it, it has to be someone from the NYPD just based on the efficiency and method of the killings. The scene where they discuss this, this potential suspect is pretty awesome because they're at, I guess, at the precinct gym. And Yes, uh, yes. And once again, even though the four of them are allegedly working out, Pacino and De Niro are so cool, they're not breaking a sweat. And no. De Niro actually gets all right. He does, what do you call that thing that he's doing? He's just lifting his body with his arms. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and Pacino's doing nothing. Pacino's just kind of like fixing his hair yeah. and, and throwing one-liners. And uh, But Wolverine and Leguizamo are like, we need to bring it. So they're just really uh, pushing the weights there. Tensions are rising between the two pairs of cops because they know, you know, they feel that one knows the other, or one knows something the other doesn't know, excuse me. Perez and Riley do go and stake out Lieutenant, uh, former Lieutenant Martin Baugh and basically just follow him for a night until he outsmarts them, pulls a gun on Perez and says, I know who you are. I have a fucking alibi. So it's basically um, not even a red herring. It's just a loose end or a dead end, rather. Yeah, he that guy did his homework because mm-hmm. he shows up with his alibi right there. He has his passport and plane tickets and everything. He's like, I was out of the country. I didn't do this. Yeah. It's almost like he was watching the movie. <laughs> Well, and also, you know, props on him because he pulled a gun on an officer and didn't get any fucking repercussions from it. So uh, it's clearly not him because we find out that a local pastor, Father Connell, was killed in a confessional booth. Again, the poetry killer in his mind is right. And, you know, Father Connell was a known child molester and the church wouldn't stop him. So, you know, the poetry killer had to type of thing. Uh yeah, the the poetry killer pulls uh, a three kings and sticks his his little note to poetry, sticks it in the guy's butt mm-hmm. after he kills him, much like the map in Three Kings. That's right. And then Carlo Gugino just uses tweezers and just pulls it out, hands it to De Niro and, and Pacino. They read it, and then she's like, let me go see what else I can find. It goes back <laughs> to the crime scene. Was it around this point that Riley and Perez are starting to think that it's Turk that's doing this? Is that it? It's somewhere around here they're right. starting to zero in their investigation. They on they haven't been watching the movie, so they haven't heard the, the voiceover uh-huh. <laughs> that uh, that's been telling us that. Yeah. Uh, well, there's that. Uh, you know what? There's this other thing that's going on. Uh, that's actually how we opened the movie, and we forgot about it. Which is that it shows uh, De Niro breaking the law for the first time because there's this uh, was it a child killer. I think that they basically frame. They know he's guilty, but they can't get him. So De Niro takes a weapon from the evidence. That's right. Yeah. And plants it on the guy. And that's how they get him arrested. Yeah. And so from then on, part of the the fear of this investigation is that people are going to find out that he did that. And that guy's going to go free. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you have that, that's a plot of Carla Gugino kind of like doing her investigation and, you know, almost uncovering what De Niro did a long time ago uh, and then him finding that she's doing some sort of snooping around and That's stopping right. her and getting rough with her and then she gets turned on and 
and then you know they have sex and all it's all forgotten yeah with the movie this heavy that packs this much of a wallop into 101 minutes i i forgot there's a fucking subplot so you know Fair, well, fair play. Well, yeah, it, but that's—I think the movie's counting on you to forget because it doesn't come into play, you know, until much later, and then later again. It's, it's just when Pacino and De Niro. Oh, the are, movie's counting on you to turn your brain off. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, in a good way, not in like uh, as in you're gonna ignore plot holes, but in like just let Pacino and De Niro take you on this ride. Yes, and and don't you worry, won't regret it. Yes, they can show you the world, shining, shimmering wonders. The final target of the poetry killer's desire, I guess would be the right word, is a Russian mobster. Uh, I didn't get his name in the film, but played by Oleg Tektorov, who, uh, for you mixed martial arts fans, was in the old school Wild West days of the UFC, the bare knuckle fighter. He also fought in Pride 1, was knocked out by Gary Goodrich, uh, but that's neither here nor there. He's a big fucking man and plays the role of a Russian mobster very well, very convincing. Uh, and is shot several times by the poetry killer, but lives. This is where there's a wrinkle in the plan of the poetry killer. Yeah, so I think it's worth mentioning by now that uh, if you if you somehow have managed to resist the utter charm of De Niro and Pacino and have actually kind of tried to think things through, there's something weird about the fact that we're hearing De Niro confess all these crimes on the voiceover, right? Mm-hmm. But every time we see the crimes, the crimes perpetrated, every time we see somebody getting shot, getting killed by the poetry killer, we don't see the poetry killer. No. Which doesn't make sense because we already know it's De Niro, right? Yeah. I mean, we heard the confession, so why why is John Avnet trying to be clever and not show us who's killing him? It's Saw-type shit, man. Right. It's like, what's really going on here? But every time you start thinking about it a little too much, then uh, Pacino shows up and like makes a joke or, or De Niro takes his shirt off yeah. and, and then you get distracted again. And this is really where Riley and Perez are zoning in. They're convinced at this point it's Turk. They go to villa, uh, visit Oleg in, uh, in his hospital bed, and he can't really talk. They, he's still living. Um, but in an interesting twist, when they show up there, it's Pacino, Perez, and Riley, because they've at this point they've wrangled in Rooster in their investigation of thinking that it's Turk. Oleg's heart rate starts to rise, so we know something's not as it seems. But then he, uh, Pacino just makes a joke about it. Yeah. Pacino, you know, he thinks it's funny. He laughs it off. He tussles his own hair. Um, <laughs> we go to Corelli's apartment, uh, Carla Gugino, and she is running a shower and is assaulted um, pretty brutally. It's uh, fortunately for us, the viewers, um, it's not anything. It's not irreversible. We don't have to watch what happens. We just kind of get the aftermath, which is uh, disturbing enough. It, it's graphic enough to like make us angry and be like, enough fucking around the Nero, it's time for you to come down. Yeah. We, we need to bring you down, and I hope it's Pacino and Leguizamo together. And we see Corelli bloodied, uh, her lips swollen and bloodied. She's explaining to Brian Dennehy what happened. Uh, says, that monster assaulted me, and he, you know, he tries to just sweep it under the rug. And, you know, if I did have one complaint about this movie is that Brian Dennehy doesn't get his in the end. Yeah, yeah, but you know, different time. I understand this movie was visionary. It's like what ten years ago mm-hmm. or so, and uh, so of course, uh, I mean, obviously this was going on back then and even further back. But I think it's brave that the movie even addressed it somewhat. Mm-hmm. That she would just make a complaint to her superior, and her superior would just kind of like shrug it off. Yeah, uh, 
right now, it seems like if a movie did it, it wouldn't be that brave. It would be just like, well, yeah, we're all talking about this. Yeah. <laughs> but John Avnet did it 10 years ago. Well, then it also empowers the uh, Corelli character because she just says, okay, fuck this. I'm going to take care of it myself. She takes her gun and she just goes off on her own investigation, which is awesome because you go from going, I hope that De Niro is uh, taken down by Pacino and Leguizamo to going, like, I hope Gugino actually yeah. shoots him in the dick. And she goes and visits Oleg in prison and has a clipboard with uh, we're not sure who, not sure who's eight by ten, but she said, "Did this man shoot you?" And he just shakes his head and she leaves. Um, which at this point, again, we think it's De Niro, right? So, so you maybe you're thinking, well, of course, why would John Avnet show us the picture when we all know who it is? <laughs> that would be too obvious. Right. Uh, Caddy corner to this. There's a sting operation set up to get. Turk, uh, Riley, Perez, and Rooster team up with Spider. They're going to lure Turk into Spider's warehouse uh, with the the hope of catching him because they think he's going to kill Spider. Yeah, uh, they're uh, they get they get Fifty Cent, they get Curtis Jackson. Excuse me, mm-hmm. uh, they get Curtis Jackson to cooperate. They offer him a deal, and uh, yeah, they just hope that De Niro is going to fly off the handle and just leave a, a, a little poem there after he shoots him. So uh, De Niro's uh, alternate attire, if this if this was a video game, it would be his uh, DLC attire, shows up in his gray sweatsuit after a, a light jog on the evening uh, and comes in to talk to Spider. And basically it escalates very quickly to where he pulls out his gun and acts like he's going to kill him because he clearly knows what's going on. Yeah, it's, it, and then it kind of shows because Cirk is there with them and, and – once it's all out in the open, Turk's like, I just I just stuck around because I wanted to watch your back. Rooster. Rooster. I'm yeah. sorry. Rooster. Yeah, and uh, sets him up, writes some dirty limerick that he says, I have a poem for you type of thing. So Riley and Perez are you know dismissed in shame that they kind of blew this. Yeah, but I also – so I like the fact that, like I said before, obviously these cops are overwhelmed. I think they mean well. They're obviously, they're trying to catch a killer. and uh, But they keep getting in each other's way. But in the meantime, Carla Gugino is, like, on the warpath. Mm-hmm. She is not fucking around. She's actually getting the answers that they did not get. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's kind of a shame that it didn't happen until the third act. But I understand that uh, this whole plot is like a house of cards. So if you play something the wrong way, it would just, it would all fall apart. So yeah. I think that they needed Gugino to just spend most of the movie having sex with Robert De Niro <laughs> so that she wouldn't wise up to the plot. I, I think that the the idea is that if Gugino had been in charge of this investigation from the very beginning, the movie would be twenty minutes. Yeah. But because she doesn't really get into it until the very end, you know, that's why she just catches up with the guys who take ninety minutes to figure out the, the murder, uh until the very end. You know? Riley and Perez leave, leaving Turk and Rooster alone with um Spider. Turk goes and takes a seat, and this is where the big reveal of the movie comes as Spider gets on the phone. He's just talking to his buddy, and we get – it's this big wide shot of De Niro sitting in, I don't know, like an auxiliary room of some sort. And then we just see Pacino come out, take his gun out, and size up 50 Cent and shoot him in the head. And, I mean, 50 Cent, God bless Curtis Jackson because he has one of the most grandiose death scenes in this film. He has, he has an epic – 50-story uh, fall. He does. He gets shot through the head and then just falls through a stained glass and just plummets. Well, he's already dead, but he just falls even further, uh, adding insult to injury, as it were. Um, and De Niro doesn't have much time to react before Pacino has the gun on him. And it's clear 
that we've found our poetry killer. Yep. And it's Albert Pacino. <laughs> Alberto Pacino. <laughs> uh, yeah, mind blown. I, are you telling me we're not supposed to trust that voiceover from De Niro that's been leading us through the entire movie? Aha! Then that voiceover in those films, we go right into that seamlessly. Because uh, De Niro, that was one of the things I was wondering about with the voiceover in the video. He's bleeding from his forehead, and that's a cut he incurred with his uh, interaction with John Leguizamo in the scene prior. Right. So Pacino gives him this little notepad. Uh, one of the notepads they were assigned by the uh, NYPD shrink for their psychological evaluations. And he says, just read it into the camera. And so we thought for the whole movie that Robert De Niro was David Fisk. And Pacino was Tom Cowan. No, sir. How clever is it to just really... It, it, you know, it, it's kind of a, a, a the magic trick where... What do you call it? It's What's the prestige? They explain it in the movie, the prestige, where, you know, the thing that distracts you so you don't see them actually performing. Slide the of trick. hand? Well, slide of hand, what do you call it? But the prestige would be like, you know, if I make like a dog fly on the side, so you look at that instead of mm -hmm. me... Switching the names of Pacino and De Niro. <laughs> that, so that's the thing. Like casting De Niro and Pacino here, that's that's the whole purpose. Not only it's not only that they're great actors, but them being great actors will distract you from the fact that it's very obvious that De Niro is not the killer. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very obvious, but you don't realize it because you're just mesmerized by their performances. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had other actors there, even if they were good actors, let's say that you had Topher Grace and Ashton Kutcher, and you would catch on really quickly that, well, no, Topher Grace, even though he's giving me this voiceover, he's confessing, he mm -hmm. is not, because why would you not show me Topher Grace doing the murders, mm -hmm. right? Uh, same thing here. We didn't see Robert De Niro actually do the murders because they were saving up the big Pacino killing everybody montage, the Kaiser Soze montage, yes. where he explains what happened. Uh, for the very end. So with that all being said, you know, this has to end one way or another. And De Niro doesn't want it to. Turk follows Pacino out. And then we get uh, Corelli. Carlo Gugino comes back into play. Um, she just, like I said, they, she catches up. She's done a whole movie's worth of investigation in uh -huh. five minutes. <laughs> it gets there right when the other guy's. Well, just De Niro, I guess, just gets there. Pacino's trying to flee. She's there. She wants to shoot him. Pacino, uh, De Niro, excuse me, he's trying to make sense of all this, um, despite the fact that he knows that Pacino had assaulted Carlo Gugino. He's still, I mean, he's in a rough spot. He doesn't really know what to believe at this point. Right, and you know, it's like the 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 police officer oath: do no harm. Yeah. So he doesn't want to harm Pacino, even if he's guilty of anything, and he doesn't want. Gugino to throw her career away by shooting him. Uh, so he's just kind of standing there, caught in the middle. He takes Corelli's gun, right? Well, like, Corelli can't bring herself to shoot Pacino, so Pacino just kind of, like, jumps off into the second story mm -hmm. or the first floor or whatever, yeah. and then he takes her gun. Yeah, that's right. So Pacino's fleeing. You know, De Niro doesn't want her to see what's about to happen, so takes her gun, uh, follows him down. It's basically a uh, parking garage is where they're at, right by uh, train tracks. And Pacino's basically goading him on, and he's just firing aimlessly. He's not trying to hit Turk at all. Uh, he's just trying to have him call it in, you know, shots fired, that type of thing. And then uh, in an act of hubris, 
Pacino calls his shot. He says, uh, 1013, officer down. And he turns the gun towards De Niro. And, you know, De Niro has no choice at this point. But he unloads his firearm on uh, Pacino. I, I don't know how recently you've seen uh, Heat. But, I mean, they, there is a, a gunfight, a, a confrontation there at the very end between uh, Pacino and De Niro. That's basically... You know, like most of the movie, they could have just shot it with them in different rooms. You know, you never really see them together until the very end where after uh, Pacino shoots the Nero down, goes and like holds his hand as he's dying or whatever. Mm-hmm. Nowhere near as satisfying as the solid, what, five, six minutes we get here of the Nero and Pacino face to face, almost in the same shot. Just like you said, Pacino's trying to get him to kill him. Yeah. And then and then once uh, once the Nero actually shoots him. In self-defense, then we get probably the most memorable. Oh, absolutely! Uh, moment in the movie. Uh, De Niro runs over, kicks the gun away, and Pacino's. You know, he's dying, but he's saying under his breath, "I'm not going anywhere." And De Niro goes to call it in, officer down, and Pacino. And the most iconic part of this film, just don't, <laughs> don't. As tears are welling up in his eyes and his final breaths are fleeting. His eyes and the audience's. Because even though he's now revealed as a monster, you that's that's the magic that this movie performs. The trick that it pulls on you is just that you're supposed to... If this was a normal person, you would just be disgusted and just happy that he's dead. Mm. But because Tal Pacino and Robert De Niro and you bought them as buddies through the entire movie... You just feel bad. You feel sorry for that friendship coming to an end. Yeah. Um, so you do not begrudge De Niro the fact that he just left Carlo Gino back there, still bleeding from being assaulted earlier, and he's instead holding his friend's hand. Yeah. Uh, you're just thinking, man, this is such a perfect mirror of that uh, heat end scene, <laughs> except this was done much better. And then we move on. It's the epilogue at this point. Right. Well, we ha- we get a quick shot of the the special investigation guys that were watching the tape. Mm-hmm. And then in another awesome reveal, the the tape ends, the, the, the Nero confession, and then it's revealed that the Nero was there the entire time That's with right. them watching the tape. We take the, the camera back a little bit, but a little bit further. We get a Reindeer Games reveal here. Um, and Robert De Niro, you know, he's going to carry on his life. He's a coach of a girls' softball league. Um and do we get a shot of Carlo Gugino? She joins him at the end. That's she, right. Yeah, that's he's, right. He's right. watching the, the, the team play, and Eugenio just comes in and sits next to him. I don't think she says anything. He's, mm. he's still – his voiceover has changed from the confession to just like the let's wrap this movie up voiceover. <laughs> and uh, he uh, he's talking about how his daughter heard about everything that had happened because uh, he had a strange daughter. Mm. And she wrote to check on him, tell him, hey – don't do anything stupid. Don't retire because you're a good cop. And uh, presumably Riley and Perez were forced to retire in disgrace. Uh, they were fucking around instead of solving crime like uh, like Carlo Gugino did. <laughs> but in the end, it's a, it's a happy ending for Robert De Niro and a tragic one for Al Pacino. Yeah, and, and I think that the very uh, hidden under all this, it's, it's really a, a much more powerful ending, which is... It has to do with the Carlo Gino character because really uh, it gets really bad for her in those last 20 minutes of the movie. Mm -hmm. And you really don't get the standard satisfaction of, oh, well, she will get Pacino, Mm -hmm. right? Because she is out of everybody there. She's the one that was wrong the most, to put it mildly. Uh, 
she almost gets there and it, and then well you know she takes the high road and doesn't shoot him and mm-hmm. then the Nero gets the cool uh you know she gets he gets to shoot Pacino and kill him uh and then but that is that seems like a realistic thing to happen you know once again the man taking over the spotlight and what should have been uh, a big moment for Carlo Gugino instead is transformed into a big moment for Pacino and De Niro. Mm-hmm. And that's not a problem that I have with the movie. That's a problem in society. Yeah. And the movie is just reflecting it. You know, it, it's when it's all said and done, you have that final shot of De Niro with his softball team uh Making you think that, yeah, well, this was about him. And then kind of in the background, Carla Gugino is just like sitting there silently. And there's almost no acknowledgement of the trauma that she went through. Yeah. I would imagine that she's going to be reckoning with the events of this movie far longer than De Niro <laughs> is. And uh, and yet, the, I mean, the acknowledgement, the acknowledgement is there because she's there in the background. Mm-hmm. But it's not up front, which, again, I think reflects society. So that's kudos to John Avnet for really... Putting it out there, especially back ten when it was ten years ago, when it wasn't that that something that you would expect. That's all I have. That that was hard. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to real talk. Let's do. Counselor, my hands are tied here. Without a secure chain of custody, any evidence obtained after the initial search must be excluded. You're going to be fucking kidding me. Therefore, I am forced to grant defense motion to dismiss all charges of rape and assault against Mr. Van Lyke. Your Honor, you think I want this guy going anywhere near my daughter? Or anyone's daughter, for that matter? Oh, begging your Honor, pardon me. I am unleashing your client onto the world. I'm sure we'll all be back here again very soon. Look at Look at this mother. Hey, it's going to come back to you. What? You're going to get it. When you walk outside, watch it. Order in my court. Okay, mother, you fucking hate my money. Order in my court. You get him out of here before somebody passes a sentence on him. You Order. can't feel him. Order. You know what I mean? Order. Go. Go. Detective. Okay, recording for Real Talk. Real Talk for Righteous Kill, this fucking movie. Uh, Righteous Kill was released on September 12, 2008. Uh, this was... Two two years before you and I knew each other, but we both screened this movie, so uh, it was it was cosmic connection right written there. To the stars, a million miles away. Um, directed again by John Avnet, written by Russell Gewertz. Uh, budget of sixty million, which I guess sounds about right. Twenty five to the Nero, twenty five to <laughs> Pacino. <laughs> 10 million million to catering (laughs) uh everybody else is just working for free (laughs) just for the honor of working with these two legends box office return of a little under 79 million so it made it it made its budget back which i would to be expected september is kind of an odd time for this this was this screams a january release to me (laughs) um but I think this was obviously 10 years ago when September was really the doldrums. I think that it's changed now to where you get movies released in September and in February and in March that could be big hits. Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways now, pretty much fucking uh, September to January is like the gauntlet for awards movies. Right. Yeah. It's it's been expanding. Uh, (laughs) Slowly but surely. Um yeah, and I think also the box office return proves that 
that was literally, I guarantee you that box office return was just because it was Pacino and De Niro. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in my imaginary Topher Gray's uh, Ashton Kutcher Gucci remake. Which, my it. God. Okay, who would be who? Uh, Kutcher would be De Niro. Right, yeah. Kutcher yeah, yeah, is yeah. De Niro. And, uh, yeah, because uh, Topher Gray's is just more... I'm the poetry killer. <laughs> <laughs> Julio, kick us off. What What is this movie? Or I'm sorry, let's get... <laughs> what is The Righteous Kill? What is The Righteous Kill? There were people that liked this out of the 19%. Yes. Uh, let's, uh, who compared it to Tarantino? Let's start there. Uh, nobody but Kurt Loder from MTV. Kurt Loder? <laughs> yes. Unless there's another Kurt Loder Oh, no, MTV. there's there's only one. It's like Gandhi. <laughs> he says, Smothering close-ups, slam-bang montages, and sudden bloody assaults, all sleekly effective. Uh, I know this is just a quote, but it's a really poor choice of words, considering what happens to Carlo Gugino. To talk about sudden bloody assaults, that just sounds like he gets off on, on like just really bad things happening to good people. Dude, Kurt Loder was like the voice... Kurt Loder broke the news of Princess Die to me. He broke the news of Joey Ramone passing. So that, that that's a bummer. He was a very important important voice in my childhood. Well, he broke the news that Righteous Kill was a good movie. Apparently, yeah, he did. <laughs> Hashtag fake, a- fake Kurt Loder news. <laughs> Exclusive story. <laughs> Only on MTV. <laughs> uh, then Jeffrey M. Anderson says, uh, from Combustible Celluloid, says it feels as if they're old friends who have worked together for decades, slipping into an easy camaraderie as well as a credible depiction of blue-collar beat walkers. Better still, they look like they're having fun. I disagree 100% with the fact that they look like they're having fun. Yeah, no, they don't. Uh, I also disagree 100% with everything else he said. <laughs> but, uh, Mary Elizabeth Williams from Salon.com says, Director John Avnet generously puts the actors together as often as possible. And the sheer satisfaction of watching Michael Corleone and Travis Bickle spark off each other is great. I mean, if you want to look at it like that, that's a piece of film history. But uh, Tim Evans from Sky Cinema says it's an effective whodunit. But more importantly, it poses refined, complex questions about how the law operates in a so-called civilized society. This guy likes vigilantes. Apparently. Uh, Stina Chin from Film Threat says seeing Robert De Niro and Al Pacino circling the thin line between cop and criminal paints a giant grin on the face. There's this many people that liked the movie? Well, I mean, you know, 18%. 19. 19, yeah. yeah. And finally, Prairie Miller from Newsblaze says... Excellent name. <laughs> Prairie Miller? Yeah. Uh, a Prairie Miller home companion. That should have been her, uh, her or his. The blog. Yeah. Uh, equally, How dare you assume their gender? <laughs> equally gritty, old school crime thriller and flashy, seductive postmodern whodunit noir, <laughs> along with the nearest off the job kinky rough sex lover forensic. <laughs> 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 uh, let's let's try this again. <laughs> De Niro is the warmest color. <laughs> yes. uh, along with the nearest off the job kinky. <laughs> You've ruined it. I can't do it now. Along with the Nero's off-the-job, kinky, rough-sex lover, forensic babe, Carla Gugino, who likes him to role-play criminals in bed. Righteous. One of my favorite uh, De Niro-isms is in Jackie Brown when uh, he has sex with... uh, I don't think she's a prostitute, but just... Um, 
Is it Bridget Fonda? Oh uh, no, the is it? Are you talking about when he's having sex with uh, the older black lady? Or no, no, no. I think it is Bridget Fonda, just in the kitchen, like the right. He, yeah, like ten seconds later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, when it's done, she's she says something like "thanks," so that's great. And he's just like. Yeah, that that hit the spot. Like I, I was just wishing, I was waiting for him to say that in this. Uh, he puts a little more effort in the sex scene in this. One. I was gonna say, I mean, I think we kind of need to talk about that. I know yeah. it's only like one thirty sixth of the film. It takes up about three shots, but well, it leads. It's tied into a bigger thing in the film, but that's a problem, which is the Carla Gugino character and just the way that she's. Uh, treated in the movie so uh yes it's funny because we it's just funny how i don't know tone deaf the movie is i think even 10 years ago this was just wrong yeah and i mean my thing with that sex scene is i'm not saying it was always wrong but i guess it was you should have known it was wrong that's what i mean no yeah definitely and the my thing with the what we were drawn uh, what we were talking about in the first portion this it's like 10 seconds but it's so tonally different than the rest of the movie. It's like lit like passionately and they're both like sweating profusely and De Niro's just pounding away at her. It's it's very disturbing. Yeah, I mean, I just I kind of And to be like Carla Gugino, uh Silk Spectre's mom, she I I don't I don't like to say typecast because it's not that, but she between this Watchmen and uh, a couple other things I've seen her Sin in. Sin City, yeah, she plays a victim, and it's like, bruh. She she has uh, well, she's the mom in Spy Kids, which I I mean I've only seen uh, the first one. I'm pretty sure there's no no sex scenes between Banderas and and Carla Gino in that one. Uh, quick sidebar: I was watching Modern Family the other day, and. Uh, Phil, what's his name? Ty Burrell had this amazing line like Claire was trying to start a fight with him or some shit. And he's just like, Claire, if you want family drama, rent Spy Kids. (laughs) Uh, I I know I've seen the first one and I'm sure it doesn't get any worse than the second or third one. She's solid. I I mean, we did have full disclosure. We had like a little bit of a uh, disagreement right after the movie or while the movie was still going when you were like, you know, Carla Gugino is just not great. No, yeah, I don't. She's overreaching. I, I've always thought that she was good. I mean, like I told you, I don't think she's good in this movie. That's because nobody is good in this movie. It's because this is not a good movie. Right. Yeah. yeah. So even Meryl Streep would just have trouble pulling this off. This movie somehow, some way, makes Donnie Wahlberg unlikable. <laughs> he's, uh, well, he's more likable than De Niro and Pacino, I think. Because you can tell that he's trying. We were not kidding in Contrarian's Corner. I mean... De Niro and Pacino are just sleepwalking through this. Pacino more than De Niro. Dude, yeah. I mean, for you faithful listeners, me and Julio were having quite the hoot watching this. Because if you haven't seen it, this is one of the, I've had a um, kind of a long-standing vision of us doing commentary tracks for movies. So basically, if you sync it with the movie, you can right, watch it. Right, right. This would have been a perfect one because we were talking about just all the Pacino-isms that Pacino does. Like his wide eyes, his, oh, like all this shit. He is... He's doing. He's Al Pacino doing an pr- impression of Al Pacino for this movie. He's yeah. He's Al Pacino playing Al Pacino playing this character, <laughs> and that's just one level too many for this kind of material. And uh, De Niro is just bored. Yeah, I, I feel bad for De Niro because he's also put into this really awkward position by the screenplay, where 
he can't, we're supposed to, as the audience, we're supposed to believe that he's the killer and that his confession is genuine, right? So he can't go too far in either direction because if he goes too far into like looking guilty, then it doesn't make sense when the reveal is that, oh, he was not guilty. And he can't go too far into like acting like a normal person that's innocent uh -huh. because then... You know, it wouldn't then then people wouldn't believe at all that he was a killer throughout the movie. And that brings in also what we were trying to figure the fuck out during the film is what Pacino's plan was. Yeah, and I, ma <laughs> making De Niro pose as him using their real names. I I don't understand, and I welcome emails and tweets that explain to us what the end game was for Pacino, other than running away. I mean, if he was just gonna run away because he knows that people are gonna know that he's a killer. Uh -huh. Why have De Niro read the confession to a camera using Pacino's name? Yeah. <laughs> so you know that that's not him. You know, that's that's specifically designed just to fuck with the audience, not mm -hmm. to fuck with the cops or anybody else in the movie. So that makes sense. Uh, but I really don't want to get away from this Carlo Gugino thing. Because <laughs> it really – I think that if you didn't have the Carlo Gugino character and subplot, this movie would just be bad. But what it does with the Carlo Gugino character really – it just makes me angry to where I just really think it's not just bad, but just like downright offensive because it really it is. It creates a character that's very sexual and then punishes her in the worst possible way. Uh -huh. You know, she she's like, oh, we have this cop that's like really kinky and it's into like being dominated. Right. Uh, she role plays with De Niro. She really she kind of gets turned on when she hears about De Niro going violent yeah. on the job and all that. So. Well, let's have her get raped by Al Pacino in the in the And then Brian Denny, he won't believe her. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then and then and then she doesn't even I mean from the moment that that happens, there's just no coming back. It's it's almost like in a very meta moment, uh, Pacino says, I did the the unforgivable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh and uh I, I don't think there was any coming back. But then to add insult to injury, you know, she just she does nothing mm. for the rest of the movie. You have her come in at the very end, but if she didn't, the movie would continue the same way. Yeah, I was gonna say even I don't even it wouldn't even redact what happened previously if she killed Pacino. But even so, that could be a way to write the ending of the movie. Right, right. It's it, it still wouldn't be good, but I would at least kind of understand why they thought it was necessary because it's like, well, De Niro can't do it because it's his buddy. Yeah. But she can do it because he just He's a piece abuses of shit. exactly. Yeah. So she'll go and kill him, right? But but no, she doesn't even get that. And so instead what she gets is this moment where that's just super cliche like everything else in the movie, where she's gonna kill him, but then she can't because she's a bigger person. And yeah. it's like one, not believable. Two it, this like really dark and gritty world that the movie has created, it's completely unsatisfying. Yeah. And then three he gets killed anyway by yeah. De Niro. Yeah. So what the fuck are you telling me? So I, I feel bad. I feel bad for Carlo Gugino mostly. Uh, I feel bad for everybody else too that's not De Niro and Pacino because they must have known. They must have thought that they were signing into like some kind of good project, right? Yeah. You have De Niro, you have Pacino. Of course they want to be part of that. And then they get the script and I'm like, well, okay, hopefully it gets better because there's no way that De Niro and Pacino will make a bad movie, right? <laughs> Although by then, I guess Pacino had done 88 minutes yeah. <laughs> with the same director, so they should have known better. Watching shit like this is also like my uh, – I think this is you and I. I think we talked about this um, while we were watching American Hustle. The whole thing with Silver Linings Playbook of 
the only reason people went apeshit for De Niro in that is because he was trying for the first time in like <laughs> right, right. two decades. Yeah, he's. Uh, I wouldn't say that he's not trying, and like I said, I think the script. Kind that, of, that's a really mean spirited way of saying it, but it's like I, I, I think, when you're as good as that, it's like I, I'm not kidding. Pacino and De Niro giving five percent is much better than a lot of people's hundred percent. Yeah, but I think that De Niro's just checkmated by the script, right? He there's no way that he could do oh, it for this particular right, movie. For this yeah, particular yeah, yeah. one. Uh whereas like but it still feels like he's taking the story seriously. Pacino just looks like he's fucking around the entire time. He's just like, ah, you know There's that one part where he's talking with Brian Dennehy in that diner and then like Denny, he says what he's going to, and Pacino's just like, bum, 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 bum. Can I talk now? It's almost like that's that's off screen. That, that you know, before the director said action, they were just like, hang on, hold on there. We got to do one more. And then <laughs> Pacino. Bet, it was just, <laughs> yeah. Let, leave it in. This is good. Brilliant. Brilliant <laughs> character work. Um, Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. Um, I thought. Curtis Jackson, Fifty Cent was fine. I, I remember when the the a lot of the marketing for this had him a lot more heavily uh, uh, featured. I mean, he has two scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which it's one of those things. Fake in, Alicia Silverson has more scenes than <laughs> Curtis Jackson. But for the stunt casting, because he would have been a hot ticket at the time, I think if you look at a lot of movies in similar situations where they have stunt casting with like different people like that, uh, the payoff isn't as good. Where he's good. Uh, I forgot how hilarious the reveal scene of Pacino is where he shoots him and he falls, you know, fucking, um, he has, uh, shit. What I'm, I'm blanking on. I'm just seeing the guy falling and reaching right now. Is that Jack Nicholson in the 89 Batman? Oh, I thought you were going to say, uh, Alan Rickman in Die Hard. Yes. That's what I'm thinking of. Thank you. But yeah, it's, it's a long fall. In slow motion. <laughs> a lot of slow motion in this movie, too. The best part of uh, the reveal of Pacino is, and if you've seen this, you can attest to it, how long the setup is, how how long he takes to size up 50 Cent with his gun before he shoots him, and fucking De Niro's just fucking playing Candy Crush on his phone waiting for it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I It was like, we knew it was coming. We just didn't know it was going to happen, because I didn't remember either that, that he was getting shot in the head. So, getting to it, not just little fun nitpicks and all that. Uh, yeah, Carla Gugino, um, beautiful woman, uh, clearly has a passion for acting. I've just never particularly seen anything with her that uh, lit my world on fire. Now, obviously, Pacino and De Niro. As you're as you're speaking, I'm looking up her filmography because I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some titles at you. There's no way that I just think she's great out of nowhere. I know I've seen her in something that I loved. I, I remember thinking she was. I don't know. I can't blame her for Watchmen. I like her in Watchmen. I, I don't remember. There's only one person her. we can blame for Watchmen. <laughs> and Watchmen as our friend of the podcast, Reed. Oh, no. She's in Sucker Punch, too. Whew. I forgot. That's not her fault. Uh, Watchmen, uh, finishing that. One word to describe that movie is dis- uh, frustrating is the word to describe it. But Righteous Kill. Man, what a clunky story like at what point did they think it was going to work? I, I think they really were just hedging their bets on the on the De Niro Pacino duo just carrying everything. Uh, and then you know it's like you have Pacino, you have De Niro, you get a good cast, supporting cast, and then you just do whatever you want. Well, even then, 
I guess so. The confession tapes, he confessed for Pacino, so he's exonerated of everything. Right. Yeah, he's not in trouble. I, at the very end, they say, well, we're closing the the poetry killer case. And he's like, all right, you do what you got to do. <laughs> and that's it. And Riley and Perez were forced to retire in disgrace. Yeah, I guess you didn't see him again. They never shake hands. They never say, like, oh, yeah, this was how funny. Funny how things work out, huh? Uh, yeah, I I don't really, but John Avnet, I mean, you haven't seen 88 Minutes, right? No. I've seen it. So I don't know what he has on Pacino or... <laughs> he knows or, where the bodies are buried. <laughs> yeah, because 88 Minutes is also really bad. If I was Pacino, after 88 Minutes, I wouldn't make the same mistake again. But somehow, not only did he make the same mistake again, but then wrangled a whole bunch of other actors to do it so well similar to uh 200 cigarettes both uh avenant and um Gwertz, the writer uh like with uh 200 cigarettes the writer and director of that did not have many at all writing or directing credits they were like producers or assistants on a lot of things so uh but yeah like you said to not have many credentials to have two films under your belt with al pacino in them that's really, yeah, that's all you need. But then again, I was thinking about that when we were watching Al Pacino did fucking Jack and Jill. And he was like in Grown Ups too. Like, I, I wonder what happened. Well, you can also, I mean, De Niro has done a lot oh, of no, shitty no, no, movies yeah, too. Yeah. So it's it's really, but still, the appeal of having the two heavyweights together in that movie. I, I, I still, I think all the Meet the Parents movies are shit. I like the first one. Uh I guess you're, you're looking at me with such disappointment. <laughs> no, I, I guess it's one of those things. Enough time has passed where De Niro's done other stuff like that that I lump it all together. But I could see at the time the comedy of De Niro, like, yeah, I mean, it's like the first made the parents, the first analyzed this. I think that I don't think they're great movies, but I think they're funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sequels are just you know play out the joke. But uh, favorite I, De Niro I, movie. Favorite De Niro movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, Goodfellas, probably. Casino, baby. Uh, yeah, but that's that's us. We're we're the split because you watch Casino first. I watch Goodfellas first. That's, that's I think true. that that sticks with you. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm a big De Niro fan, I'd, which is why it hurts me every time he comes out with like a shitty movie like this one. Uh, Pacino, I'm not as big a fan. Like with that that quote that we write about, oh, Travis Bickle, Travis Bickle meets uh, Michael Corleone. I'm like, I guess I'm not a big Godfather uh, person, yeah. but. Uh, he's still. I mean, I know he's good. I know he can be good. Uh, I mean, if you go back to Heat, Heat is a lot of Pacino hitting the Pacino notes, but it's still good. Yeah, you know. And I know a lot of it has to do with the directing and the writing. It's not just Pacino running amok. Uh, but even De Niro, I think that the De Niro performance in Heat is a lot more interesting than the Pacino performance. You know. That man. That's. Feels like a lifetime ago we did Taxi Driver on here. But, I know that was, that was our first year of Contrarians. But yeah, that that's uh, it's so weird seeing that guy, that De Niro, and things like this. It's yeah, I I don't know. But that's what, what a lifetime in the booze will do to you, right? He, I mean, I I would imagine he doesn't need the money. So it's like, what makes him want to do a movie like this? Is it because he likes the people? You know, that it's like, oh, I just want to work with these guys, and yeah. you know. Or, or just, well, I want to keep working because I need to stay relevant and this is the best script that I was offered. Or I don't know, you know, but I think that it actually it hurts the brand when he when he does something like this. Yeah. And he's done it so often. Well, that's what I'm saying. I've never years. seen him 
like Pacino's gone way lower than like De Niro has, <laughs> and that's I, I don't know. That's you don't come back from being in a Happy Madison film. <laughs> uh, I I never seen Jack and Jill. I've just heard the. <coughs> I haven't either, but I know he's in it. Yeah. Did you watch? I think the the post credit scene is him dressed as a woman, pitching uh, Pacino donuts or something. I don't know. I'm. I don't really. I haven't seen it. I just heard about uh, it. But. Yeah. I don't. That's disappointing. Um, yeah. I I I did a quick look through Carla Gugino's filmography, and I'm really trying to figure out why I'm so taken with her because I haven't seen. <laughs> well, I haven't seen that many of 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 her movies. I like her in Sin City. I liked her in uh, in Spy Kids, uh, and she uh, she was in. Uh, she had like one special appearance in Justified, which is a show I really liked. I thought she was great in it. Oh yeah, you did like that show. Yeah, oh, Justified is great, man. Uh, which you know, funny story. I was as I was looking through it, John Avner directed ten episodes of Justified. Really, they're probably the ten worst episodes of Justified, <laughs> but they're still better than this movie, I'm sure. Uh, and then, uh, well, apparently she had a a TV show that got canceled halfway through the first season that was based on an Elmer Leonard book or an Elmer Leonard character. I think it's uh, Karen Sisko, which is the that was the name of the show. It's also the character that Jennifer Lopez plays in Out of Sight. So they were doing okay. a TV show based on that character. And uh, Robert Forster was her dad, I think. Nice. Uh, who plays her dad in the movie? It's Dennis Farina, I think, mm-hmm. in Out of Sight. Anyway, that sounds like a great show, and it got canceled. But I'm sure I, I just kind of get the feeling that Carla Gugino just fucking aced it in that uh, show, and it got canceled. And then they brought that character to justify it for that one episode, but they couldn't call her uh, Karen Sisko for copyright reasons or whatever. So she's just, I don't know, they call her something else, but you know it's Karen Sisko, mm-hmm. and uh, she was great. So anyway, I don't know. Bottom line is I, I've never had a problem with her. Even in this movie, I think that she's among the sea of like shitty lines she still manages to hold her own again well because she sticks out because it's shit but like the cream rises to the top type thing because <laughs> well, she, I mean, she's giving a genuine effort her performance is believable she's not phoning it in and her character is like the only sympathetic one really yeah 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 and i really i i keep coming back to this but i think that it's i think it's unusual in, but in a good way to show a female character that is just sexually adventurous without it being like it shouldn't have been a big thing you know I would have liked it if it was just like a throwaway detail that her relationship with the Nero was just this kind of kinky yeah. role playing thing uh, and that makes me like her character even more yeah that's that what's so has, fucked up about the movie is she's vilified for right, that right know. so uh, yeah I I uh, I guess, I don't know. I'm sure that... Well, you could also go back to the other actors, and they, you can't also blame them. I mean, Leguizamo and, uh, and Donnie Wahlberg, they do what they can. Uh, Donnie Wahlberg does what he can every day. <laughs> He's hustling. He's a great man. Uh, he, he lives under the shadow of... Uh, That's a big shadow. Academy Award nominee. And uh, Wahlberg for The Departed. Oh... Did he get nominated for The Fighter also? Uh, I don't know. That's right. He did get nominated for The Departed. Yeah. Rightfully so, because he's fucking great in that movie. He's great. Should have been nominated for fucking Pain and Gain. Rock should have been nominated for Pain and Gain. <laughs> Pain and Gain should have been nominated for it, Best Best movie. Picture, Best Director, <laughs> Best Original Score. Um, so, yeah. Uh, 
I think you've spun me on your Carla Gugino argument throughout the course of this podcast because really and truthfully, yeah, she was the only one giving it their all. When we finally get around to the Watchmen episode, I think you're gonna you're gonna see it with new eyes, her performance and maybe the movie even. Watchmen that may be that may need to be the uh the hundredth episode. <laughs> no, the first uh commentary track. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it in three parts. Uh, so 19%, $79 million, give or take. Um, I think I think we already did, but we can agree this the majority of the money was just based on P- Pacino and De Niro being on the marquee. I, I would imagine. That's why I watched it. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have watched it uh, if not it, for that. Yeah. Unless it, the only other combination I would have watched this for was Kutcher and Grace. So, But not even that, because I think that by then I already seen 88 minutes. Mm. So... Kind of like shame on me because I should have known better, and, and yet. Michael Scott says, uh, "Fool me once, shame on, or fool me once, strike one. Fool me twice, <laughs> strike three. Um, yeah, nineteen percent, well deserved because it's not only like lazy performances, but it's just lazy filmmaking. Yeah, and and maybe." Uh, I took a look at John Abnett's career to see like what else he's done because it's not like I'm watching anything directed by him ever. And yeah. he has a gazillion credits, uh, mostly as a producer, but still. So this is a guy that's steeped in the film industry, yeah. Uh, which makes you think like you know maybe you just shouldn't direct anymore and just just stick to producing and mm-hmm. just doing other stuff. Uh, maybe not direct features. Maybe he's done better on, on TV. You know, uh, I don't know. I I just. Based on two features as a sample of his work, that is, as a director, it's very disappointing, I guess. Yeah, I guess you could describe it as a bit of a mystery, not in the Pacino-De Niro sense, because up until this point, for quite a while, they hadn't given those classic performances. But the people that were, you know, steering the rudder for this, it's, you know, how do they get a project this big type of thing? Yeah, and, and because it's really, I guess we haven't really... Talk much about it because there's not really much to say, but it's it's not even well shot. I mean, it's no. just it, it looks like a on my notes I wrote like a made for TV movie, except that TV the quality of TV has risen so much that really <laughs> that it's it, it's more like a straight to video. Yeah, you know, it it looks visually it just looks confused. There's a lot of really outdated visual tricks it keeps i laughed out loud when he does the thing where he's he has a split screen but the split where screen the, shows the front on but also the silhouette right so yeah. you have you have the nero on the right side you have the nero looking at the camera and then on the left side you have the nero in profile yeah why i don't understand why is that other than oh well, it looks cool man yeah it, you know there's there's a well, lot of... that, that's only for one scene it's right. not like any of the visuals exactly. are yeah, thematic yeah. right because you have a, a movie like uh Ang Lee's uh, Hulk, right? Uh-huh. It does a lot of that, but that's like, one, it makes sense because, oh, well, it's comic book panels, and two, it's throughout the movie. Yeah. Here, it's like, what the fuck are you trying to depict? What, For what's one the meaning? Scene. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, it's when they're talking to the string, it's like, are you telling me that he's like conflicted? There's like two people inside his mind. It's just, it's yeah. clunky. The, the action is not well shot. Uh, the, the score is just overbearing. You know, every time they had the dramatic music behind their, their, confrontations or anything. Yeah. Uh, and I I ultimately anytime that there's like a pacing problem, I just I'll blame the director because he was there, you know, he should have known better. And yeah. this movie 
even I mean, it's not really that long. 100 minutes. We've done longer movies. And I was just getting antsy. Because... We are coming off the heels of American Hustle. Exactly. We've done yeah. much longer movies. Actually, we are. But our listeners That's true. won't get to American Hustle until next, next episode. episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was that was a tease. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think that uh, that is well directed. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sticking by that. I'm sure John Avnet is like. A great guy, and that's how he gets everybody else to be in his movies. But apparently, um, yeah, I think that's about all we can say. I think we kind of, uh, a lot of our material, we, a lot of the wind was taken out of us in that first portion there because it was difficult to talk <laughs> about. Um, but yeah, Righteous Kill is definitely a movie. I'm glad we revisited it just for the scene of Pacino's death where he don't. That is that is the greatest moment in the movie yeah contrarian's corner or not just pacino <laughs> whispering don't to to the nero is i mean we've that's what stuck with me that and the fact that i i did remember how badly the movie treated the carlo gugino character well i didn't yeah. remember that i i remembered the don't uh and 10 years that's been the thing that stuck that has stuck with me out of all the movies i've seen in the past 10 years I remember that as much as anything else, and it's also become a bit with me and Julio and our friends in terms of just something to reference. But um, winding down, that, of course, will bring us along to plugs. Did I plug Ozark in the last episode? Uh, I don't remember. I know we talked about it beforehand, uh, before we recorded last time. Yeah, I may have. That would so, be really weird if you plugged it in the American Hustle episode. and it's, Yeah, it's plugged up. it in the future. <laughs> right. Uh, just to be safe, yeah, Ozark's good. Watch it. <laughs> um, and then, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, I I am sick. I've been sick for over a week now. Uh, it's been better. Last week, I had to take a few days off of work and was just pretty much bedridden all day. Uh, so my plug for this episode will be what helped me get through that was I started and finished a video game in that time, a video game called Firewatch uh, for the PS4 which is fantastic. It's a it's a quick play. It's not like I played a game that you know would take It wasn't a, a role playing game. No, 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 nothing like that. Um but it's you assume the role of a uh national park uh national forest, excuse me, uh park ranger and you you go about doing daily duties and all that and then slowly more and more this impending sense of doom and dread sets in on you and it's it gets really creepy but man it's a visually a hell of a game and um the experience of it was just great and helped me get through a few days of doing nothing but fucking being in bed so i'll take it so plug goes to firewatch for playstation 4 that is the kind of bed rest that i never get that's that's the dream bed rest you know where you're like sick but not sick enough that you can't enjoy TV and video games or whatever. When I get sick, I get so sick I can't do it. Mm. So it sucks because I'm I'm missing work. I'm not making money, and I'm unable to do anything other than just well, I, die I, slowly. I don't want to paint a picture of me like little kid where the mom's bringing pancakes <laughs> sick. I had fucking tissues stuffed up both my nostrils. Uh, fucking you know trash can next to the bed type of thing. So. But it was worth it for Firewatch. You finished the game. I did. It was fucking great. I'll probably pay, play back through it. Julio, what you got for us? Um, I, I'm still in the process of catching up with uh, Academy Award-nominated movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
I watched The Post, which was great. Was it? Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, Steven Spielberg. I mean, if you're like me, that alone is enough for you to go like, I'm sure it's yeah, going to be th- good. Yeah, that sounds like such a gimmick. But it isn't. I mean, come on, man. Tom no, Hanks. I, no, no, no. I, I know. I, I, I believe you. I'm just saying, like, when you hear that, it's like, come on. But it's, I mean, it's a gimmick in the sense that, well, yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis playing Lincoln, right? Oh, well, that's a gimmick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can never remember if you liked it or not. Lincoln? Just, yeah. It was fine. It did not deserve any of the things it got. It's it's better than you, that you're giving it credit for. Okay, that's unfair. It deserves some of the things it got. He was not better than Joaquin Phoenix was in The Master. <laughs> uh, probably, yeah. I mean, I love The Master, so you know. And yeah. I think The Master is a better movie than Lincoln, but I still think Lincoln was really great. And also, I, I remember Lincoln caused this huge, like, uh, borderline existential crisis within me and, like, outrage against uh, the uh, MPAA. Because they say, like, fuck, and there's, like, bodies that are disemboweled and beheaded in that movie, but it's still got a PG-13 rating due to its... Uh, historical content uh-huh. and then the fucking political game man <laughs> it's not like i'm gonna sit here and tell you daniel Day lewis isn't like one of the greatest actors of all time because he is but just because someone plays a history yeah anyway well i mean i mean that it- you're right in that sense tom hanks and meryl streep being in a spielbergo film is not as cliche as like daniel Day lewis playing abe lincoln but even if it was a cliche i mean it's like it's one of those like, oh, it's a cliche for a reason, or it's just like it feels like a gimmick for a reason. That's you know, true. Great director, great actors. Well, of course I'm gonna go see that movie, you mm-hmm. know. And then you add the fact that it's it has resonance with current America, you know, and it's like the press versus the government and all this stuff. So it's 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 just great. The supporting cast is fantastic, and I just I really loved it. Uh, speaking of DDL though, uh, and PTA, I watched Phantom Thread. That's this doesn't qualify as a plug because I don't think it's that great. It's still good. Definitely, I liked it better than Inherent Vice. Definitely worth watching. Um, I'm sure you, being the fancy hipster that you are, you're going to go watch it in 70mm. We'll see. <laughs> have, you been, have you seen anything about it? I've heard um, a friend of the podcast, Reed, said he would be interested to hear what my thoughts were on it. Well, now I'm interested in his thoughts. Just, uh, <laughs> it's supposed to be allegedly uh, DDL is retiring, so this is his yeah, last performance. Yeah, I heard that. Um, like I've seen it in other places, it's not a bad one to go out on, uh, but it's not. There, there will, will be, be blood. blood. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, and then I watched uh, "Call Me by Your Name," which have you heard about that one? Uh-huh. Yeah, it was good. I I liked it. I I liked it a lot. Uh, like most movies this award season and probably several award seasons back a little long. It it feels like it earns its runtime, but I, I don't know, man, the older I get, the less patience I have for movies that are, that have like a slow buildup. Uh-huh. And uh, this one is the pace is really slow. It has a great payoff. Once it gets kicking, it, it, it it's really good, but I, I'm sure it has to do with just, you know, I work a lot, so my free time is pretty precious, which means that I'm like, Is it as good as blue is warmest color? Um uh, that's a very my first instinct is to say no, because I was gripped a lot faster by blue is the warmest color. Mm-hmm. This is not as long. It's just like a little over two hours. It's oh, just, okay. It's just slow paced. Oh. Uh it's one but, of those movies that it feels longer than it is. Right. But it I mean 
I think it's a it's a worthy comparison because you know Blue's the warmest color is this big lesbian romance, and this one is a big gay man romance. Mm-hmm. You know, and it has the added thing of oh, well, one's Army Hammer and the other one is supposedly a seventeen year old. So oh, like you know the age difference and all that stuff. Uh, it's really good. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Uh, Army Hammer's great. Yeah, it gets a lot of hate online though. Did you see that that article that got some website posted an article basically going through his career and it was the tone is very snarky and it almost feels like they're making the case for oh well you know army hammer is a good guy but really underneath they're saying well you know he's he's really he keeps getting chances because he's a rich white guy and then at the end it actually comes out and says it <laughs> and i i see their point you know it's like oh wow he keeps he hasn't been in any big hits since the social network really you know every big attempts of making army hammer happen have failed and and yet he still has a career he still keeps coming back up you know and uh so i mean i guess you can say you can make this sort of unfair comparison and say why does he get to have all those second, third, fourth chances? And yet when you have an emerging actor who's not white, who's not a rich white male, you know, why is it they only get one shot? And then if that doesn't happen, then they're back to the end of the line, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I can see the argument. But at the same time, is it Adam Hammer's fault? Mm-hmm. I mean, not really, you know? I, at least it didn't feel... To me, it felt like it was a little petty to just single him out and... Say, I think even the article kind of acknowledged it when they were saying it kind of sucks that uh, that he's the one that we're choosing to make an example of. I was going to say, Lone like, Ranger is not his fault. Right, right. And I think that he's – I haven't seen it phone it in yet. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think the most that they could rightfully accuse him of is to kind of change his stance depending on what movie he's promoting, right? So when, when Lone Ranger – I think it was Lone Ranger that uh, – got into trouble with critics, you know, where uh, uh, Johnny Depp and the director, Gore Verbinski, were saying that the critics had made up their mind before they even watched the movie, and so the movie bombed because of the critics, and then Army Hammer, I think, kind of, like, joined them. It's like, yeah, fuck the critics, right? Uh, then his, uh, the movie Birth of a Nation, did you hear about that? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so he was in it. That was also supposed to be, like, a big moment for him. He, I think he's really good in it, and then the whole PR. about Nat Turner? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and then the whole PR disaster happens where like the director is revealed to have had like a sexual scandal in the back uh, in its past, mm-hmm. and uh, so the movie bombs, and then. And to be fair, the the story of Nat Turner is <laughs> is uh, while I find it like Nat Turner was one of the first like historical figures I clung to. In, really? Like in uh, embracing up. your African American heritage. Wait, well, yeah, remember learning about the obviously different time learning about Nat Turner in elementary school. I don't know if they would teach that shit anymore today, but like embracing to how much he believed in his, you know, stance and his uh, uh, righteousness, as it were. But yeah, that story is not exactly one that appeals across the board. Yeah, it's it's a it's kind of a weird movie. I don't think. Uh, well, and I remember t- you know the other the other film, Birth of a Nation, right? Oh well, yeah, for yeah. like the classic blackface yeah. <laughs> movie. Yeah, I, I guess I don't know enough about the most recent. Was it named that intentionally because of that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's uh, 
I think maybe I, I really don't know. I, I get off the top of my yeah, head. I'm I, like, I oh, they were trying. They were trying to reclaim the name from a really racist. Well, I don't know <laughs> if it's that or if it was like basically to you know tie them together or whatnot. Um, yeah, the, the fucking Birth of a Nation from like the 1800s is like in the National Film Registry and shit. I'm just like, for Christ's sakes, man. Hey, it's history, you know. Uh, oh yeah. Well, you know, Huck Finn. It, remember when they were doing that whole thing where uh, schools didn't want to carry Huck Finn anymore because the N word is all over. That's right. And just embrace your history. Don't you know? Don't uh, uh, don't say it's okay, yeah. but just. Oh, well, I mean. That was kind of halfway facetious because I know Birth of a Nation from uh, the original, like they did all kinds of things filmatically and right. cinematically was, that were like groundbreaking. Yeah, I, I guess to me it's like an easy reaction because uh, going to film school, that was one of the big ones. Yeah, and so I haven't I haven't even seen the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And but yet when I, somebody says Birth of a Nation, I was like, oh yeah, that's like classic film history. You know, yeah. it's a building block, like Citizen Kane or whatever. It's one of those uh, things. There's things about it that are, uh, I think, all around. You can say that we learned from everything in that movie, and be it good or bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but but yeah. So so Army Hammer, I think you know that that, that article kind of like the Winklevi. The, the Winklevi. Uh, that article, I think, was a little unfair to him. Even though their, the point they were making was a valid one, I felt bad for him. And of course, they picked him because "Call Me by Your Name" is the new thing, right? His new chance, where everybody's saying, "Oh, yeah. well, this is a new Army Hammer breakout role." Mm-hmm. And, and of course, he didn't get nominated for anything. I don't think he's won any awards for yeah. it. Uh, but he's great in it. He's great, and you know, like you said, he's always great. Yeah, I can't think of a single time where I th- even where the Entourage movie, yeah. even the Entourage movie, his cameo was just fine. I mean, he fit right in with all those white guys. <laughs> all, the, all the bro, the culture. plight of the rich white man. Yeah, uh, but yeah, Logan, How, Logan. Hey, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I my friend was like uh, my friend Corey, who's been in the podcast. He was yeah. telling me why is that uh, under adapted screenplay instead of original when it's not really adapting any storylines. And I told him, and I'm ninety nine percent sure I'm right. As if you're using characters that have been, yeah, in, yeah then it counts as yep. adapted, right? Yep. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. So basically, a sequel will never be like if I made a movie where fucking, um, you know, Dorothy marries the Tin Man and they grow up, and it's basically Pleasantville, and and they like raise a family in outer space. It would still be adapted screenplay, right? Because, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I thought. But yeah, cool for Logan to get that. That made me happy because, like, I really, you know, I like all my hyperbolic tweets and Facebook statuses and all that. I really thought Logan was an incredible movie worthy of award recognition. I thought it was that good, and I fully expected it not to get anything. So to see it at least get that, that's cool. I think it's cool. I, I think it's it's I, it's not the one I'm rooting for. Uh, adapted screenplay. I'm all the way in with. Uh, Molly's Game, which mm-hmm. again, this is like the weird. I plug Molly's Game in the upcoming uh, yeah. American Hustle episode, <laughs> but yeah, that's. I'm still happy that I got nominated at I, this point in my life, and how many Oscars and how many movies I've watched and all that. It to me is more about the nomination because usually they make up their minds who's going to win right beforehand. Yeah. yeah. A nomination means it's at least like that pat on the back of like you done good, kid. Type right. Of thing. Yeah. Which Robert Pattinson and Good Time were. <laughs> erroneously uh excluded but yeah that's one of those movies 
it's not even like drive. Like I had a case to be mad about drive because it was like known about across the board. Good time just kind of fell between all these cracks. Like it seems it's like, like righteous kill. Nobody talks about it. <laughs> it is exactly like righteous kill. <laughs> is Pattinson uh, De Niro or Pacino? Uh, Pattinson is Carlo Gugino because oh. he because he's actually trying. <laughs> So outside of that, did you have any other uh, Oscar movies that you were? Uh, I'm telling. Oh well, and I told you, we already had this brief conversation right before uh, we watched the movie. But I, I watched The Big Sick, and I think it's it's great. I think it's really sweet. It's really funny. Just a little too long, and you know, I it's not surprising because you have Judd Apatow's last name right there up front as soon as it begins, and of course, I just. At this point, I associate John Apatow with movies that are too long. And Johnny's just like, should we cut some of this out? No, 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 no. Leave it all in. Don't worry. Everything. <laughs> Every single thing. Yeah, it just – it's also one of those tricky things. I would imagine that uh, – I said this on my letterbox review. <laughs> I would imagine that the the fact that it's based on a true story made them want to stick to the true story as much as possible. And, well, you know, life doesn't work according to a dramatic structure. So, to me, the movie – and this is not a spoiler because obviously you know it's based on a true story. And you know he married the girl in the movie. So yeah. to me, the movie ends when she wakes up from that coma. Yeah. As soon as that happens, I think that you just wrap it up, yeah. right? Uh, but then the the movie keeps going in in and what happens after that? I imagine it makes sense if it happened in real life, right? Oh well, of course she didn't forgive him right away and. You know, you need him to have this it no encounter. It is a this movie. Encounter. It's like a, right. Yeah. It's just more like a, this, like you telling your buddies how you met your your wife. One right? of the problems with it too is it's a victim of itself, and that Ray Romano and Holly Hunter are so good that when those long stretches of time go by that they're not on screen, you want them to be like back. I actually, I mean, I love them. I, I love every, like the four main characters, and even like the the I, I love the family. I love the the Kamal's other set of comedians. Yeah, I I love everybody, but. To me, the big revelation was uh, Zoe Kassan because I think I've only seen her in one movie before this one. And uh, it was just like an independent drama. And I didn't think that she was particularly good in it. Uh, it, it could have been like yeah, Carla Gugino's syndrome. Yeah, not much of the movie. Well, but in, in this one, The Big Sick, I think that even though she doesn't get as much screen time as everybody else, when she's there, oh, she yeah. is a hundred times better than I expected. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think she fits right in with people that at least I consider more seasoned comedians. Yeah. So I think she's funny. I think she's in the dramatic sense, she's good. She sounds natural with them. You know, she's playing with the same style that, of delivery that they are. So uh, I was actually really happy. Uh, to me, like my biggest takeaway from The Big Sick was, oh, Zoe Kazan is funny and she can be actually really good. Uh, all the other people, I knew they were funny already. Yeah, you know, I, that's true. I, the brother has my, I think my favorite comedic line in the film, where uh, Kumal, I think he calls biscuits cookies, and he says, "Listen to you, you sound like Julia Louis Dreyfus." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, which actually, I guess, leads me to my final plug. And Here we just go. Out of it, uh, I finally finished the last season of Beep. Well, it's not their final season, the most recent one, uh, which ended last year. But I just now got around to to finishing it, and it was so good. That show's excellent. Even though they've changed uh, showrunners last season. I think it was last season they changed it. Uh, 
I felt like the show didn't miss a beat. It's still as filthy and as funny as, uh, uh, you know, you would want it to be. Uh, Got a mental hurdle in terms of going back to that show, but I really want to. <laughs> a mental hurdle? Uh, it was uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine that was like our show. Oh, God. Dude, is that really a thing? It's never happened to me, but you're, oh, yeah. you're not the first person that, that has told me that, you know, uh, this won't name him, but I had somebody that wouldn't, I think he still hasn't finished Breaking Bad because he was watching with a girlfriend. And oh, was, yeah, I can see that. I I haven't, yeah, no. Uh, well, you know, it's so good that hopefully it'll help you. It, it fits the maddest rule, too. It's like... It's 30-minute episodes. 30 minutes, That's yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, well, you know, my favorite character is Amy, uh, oh. and uh, she has so many great lines in the in the finale that I just watched, but it was uh, my favorite. She says, uh, oh, God, it's like something bad just happened, and uh, so she's like, I need to go get drunk and slut fuck an intern. And <laughs> so the line itself is really funny, but what makes it even funnier is that there's an intern right behind her. <laughs> And the guy reacts to the line and looks at her and then quietly walks away. <laughs> uh, it's so good. If you're not watching Veep, uh, you're in for a lot of fun because there's like five seasons in already. And yeah, mm. it's, it's really good. All right. Well, winding down. Uh, that was Righteous Kill. Uh, those are our plugs. Uh, it was a movie. I mean, Yeah. It's only an hour and 40 minutes, so it's not something you can be mad about watching, but I don't recommend it. If you're a woman, you might be madder than us. That's true, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't do much for women or to perpetuate any stereotypes about New York at all. Oh, yeah, that too. Uh, yeah, if you know you're a cop, if you're a New York cop, you might have something to say about this movie. It's yeah, just, also, just stay away from it. Yeah, just don't watch it. It's it's It also, I really... The whole idea is, wow, Pacino and De Niro were so great in Heat, where they share one scene, not counting the shootout at the end, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody talks about the diner scene, and, uh, you know, like, the whole thing is, did they ever, were they even in in the same space, right, because of the way it's shot? Uh, I really, I wish I cared enough to, like, go and research and see how true it is that they have some sort of feud or, uh, you know a rift has grown between them or whatever but is this, this movie accidentally I think makes the argument that too much of a good thing is a bad thing mm-hmm. you know because here it's just whether it is because they don't like each other or because you know they were just in the hands of a director that couldn't handle it or whatever they're just there's nothing of that chemistry and that tension and that talent that was on display in those six minutes in heat yeah so here it almost feels like they can't even look at each other in the face. Most of their scenes, they're just looking away. It's like they're they're like that post one night stand uh, <laughs> mood, where they're just like you're putting clothes on and you don't really want to make eye contact. That's that's them through the entire movie. Um, so I think that maybe as a filmmaking curiosity of what happened when two great actors completely didn't live up to the expectations put on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, maybe worth watching if you don't have anything else to do. Other than that, yeah. Yeah, no, stay away. Put it on while you're packing and you have friends around and you can drink with them. There you go. Questions, comments, concerns, or if you do really like this movie and need to plug, uh, need to tell us why, excuse me, uh, we are the contrarians at gmail.com is this pla- uh, the place to go. 
Uh, yeah, if you know what was Al Pacino's endgame, really. <laughs> Why did he record De Niro reading his notebook confession? How did he benefit from that? Yeah. Uh, opening and closing tracks, the festive years. Um, do we have anything new on them? Uh, not yet, but their album is Don't Let Me Use You. The opening track is Last Stand. The closing track is Summer of 1999. Mm -hmm. we have anything else? All right. Well, that covers everything on this end. Uh, we will be back for episode number 53 with American Hustle, joined once more by our Australian comrade, uh, Chaz. He, he has a lot to say. We already recorded that one, so we can tell you that it's quite a doozy. It's, it's everything uh, you wanted us to say about American Hustle and more. And more. Uh, but for now, that's going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. The summer of 1999.